Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to a guest that will be familiar to some of you. He has been on the show several times. I think that in our current cultural moment, he is one of the most important Canadian voices. I've known him for years. His name is Jojo Ruba. I first met him through the pro-life movement. He was a one of two people who recruited me into the pro-life movement back when I was a campus leader in Vancouver, British Columbia. Since then, he's done all kinds of things. He was a full-time pro-life activist, a full-time apologist, and now he is not only still a full-time apologist, but he is addressing his skills and his talents to one of the most current issues facing Western civilization, which is how do we grapple with the LGBT revolution, uh, not only in Canada, but of course around the world. And Jojo has addressed the conversion therapy ban here in Canada. The last couple of times he was on this show, he was talking about that. But a lot of people have kind of forgotten about the conversion therapy ban because it doesn't seem to many people like it has an immediate impact on their lives. But there is a lot going on behind the scenes and a lot that Christians both in Canada and elsewhere should be aware of. And so I had Jojo on again to talk about what his organization Free to Care is doing. And this is that conversation. So just to start off, Jojo, the last time we had uh, you on the show, we were talking about the conversion therapy ban uh, that was passing uh, in the House of Commons. We know you testified before the House of Commons. And since then, uh, with your organization Free to Care, which you founded explicitly to address these new challenges the church is facing, you've been traveling across Canada and I believe elsewhere speaking on these issues. So maybe start by introducing us all to Free to Care. Yeah, yeah, so Free to Care started with, as an ad hoc group of Calgarians, really, when uh, Calgary, the city of Calgary, tried to pass a conversion therapy ban here and successfully did so, uh, despite all of the opposition we faced and even just biased counseling. With Chris Wells, actually, the guy who started this all up in Edmonton, uh, vetted our speak, uh, uh, talks, our five-minute presentations to city council and decided which, which ones of our comments were true or false. So one of our supporters, he said, biologically, there's only male and female. And he, uh, one of the city councillors with his goading uh, objected to that, right? That's the kind of stuff we were facing, even though this was supposed to be a public hearing and we were supposed to be able to present our points of view, they were actually doing everything they can to stop it. Despite all that, we were able to organize the largest ever response to any municipal bylaw in Alberta's history, and the other side, I th I'm, we're pretty sure, we're not 100% sure, but pretty sure that the uh, the city actually extended the the time limit for people to be able to send submissions because we had so many submissions on our side just to balance it out. And some of their submissions were like two sentences long, whereas ours were well thought through, well organized. And the reason why I start there, Jonathan, is because that's what we realize is so needed right now in terms of the Canadian context, right? Uh, we are dealing with a situation that's massively changed the church from within 
because we can see how much the cultural influence in the church is taking the church away from biblical orthodoxy. And, and, and that's what I always tell, tell people when it comes to the Christian worldview, this issue is not about sex or sexuality. This is about whether or not we can trust that all of God's commands are good for us. And as, as a Christian who has same-sex attractions, that's very hard to say, but it's a lesson I've had to learn that, look, I, I may want to act on a certain kind of attraction or action, but at the end of the day, that's not the best for me. And my good God, uh, who knows better than me, has made rules that I should follow because he's good. And that's that's the heart of what we want to be able to do. So what we were able to do here in Calgary was mobilize a whole bunch of people and really give them the confidence to say, hey, we're the good guys in this. We're not the bad guys. And, and we are inundated in a culture that says any kind of opposition makes us bad. It, it really goes back to a historian. I, I don't remember who it was, but... It was really, uh, it, it, it seared into my brain and in my mind, I should say, Jonathan. Uh, he said, he asked the question, why were the Jews, at least so many of them, so lackadaisical in terms of they, they didn't really present any kind of opposition to their persecution just before the Holocaust? Why, why were they so easily rounded up was the question he asked. And one of the things he pointed out was the Jews for centuries had been labeled and, and hated and blamed for everything from the Black Plague to economic downfall. And so they internalized this perception about themselves. And, and I think the same thing is happening here with the Christian community. We have a whole bunch of people saying awful things about us. The seeker-sensitive model, which prioritizes the cultural view of the church, as opposed to God's view of the church, uh, forces us to accommodate the culture's views. And now we have situations where Christian schools, for example, all over Western Canada and Ontario are now capitulating and adopting a pro-LGBT theology. We have churches doing the same thing. And it's no wonder that the Christian community is not even um, engaging on the political fronts because they themselves are, are torn and divided and capitulating within the church itself. And so that's what Free to Care really is stepping in to address. We have to help the church go back to the understanding that the biblical worldview in all of its teachings is both true and good. So I've gotten texts and calls and emails from friends whose churches or Christian schools are buckling on this thing. You've been getting messages and and, and getting uh, contacted by people for a couple of years on this now. What do you think the state of, of the Canadian Christian church writ large is? Would you say that the majority are holding fast on, on, uh, on God's law or are the majority buckling or is there just sort of a reigning state of confusion at the moment? I think there's all of those responses, but clearly there's two two responses. There's there's one where we've talked about they've capitulated, they followed through. They don't understand that by saying we can change what the Bible teaches on this topic, they're not only saying that uh, the, the commands aren't clear, which they actually are about sexuality. God, J Jesus made it very clear when he talked about divorce. God designed sexuality for one man, for one woman, and for one lifetime. And the fact that there's there's several passages against homosexuality isn't even enough. The Bible has no positive affirmation for any kind of sexual activity, whether it's considered gay or straight, outside of that paradigm. 
So you're either single and celibate or you're married to the opposite sex for one lifetime, one person, right? Uh, those are our only options, really. And 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 that I come back to that because when you throw out those clear biblical teachings, that means you're willing to throw out everything else. And that's why we call this view the revisionist view. And the revisionist view really says, I can revise the Bible based on my morality, my understanding of right and wrong. And if you think about what that means, that's the same lie Satan told Adam and Eve. You can know truth, you can have knowledge of good and evil apart from God. And that's what they've done. Bart Campolo, if your listeners and, and viewers are, are not familiar, he's a famous, uh, the son of a famous Baptist pastor named Tony Campolo. He himself became a Baptist uh, evangelist preacher until he came out as an atheist after, uh, a, I think it was an accident and he was in the hospital for a while. And he actually observed this. He said, uh, as an atheist now, 40% of revisionist or liberal Christians end up becoming atheists anyway, because they end up adopting the perspective that they know better than God, what's right and wrong. And then they realize afterwards, they don't need the Bible then. They don't need God then if they can determine what's right and wrong. And that's, that's frankly, idolatry. That's why revisionism ends up that way. The other perspective that we see is the more traditional view. And what I mean by that is not not meaning to be derogatory. It's the view that says homosexuality is wrong. God designed marriage for a husband and wife. But in this sense, it's a frustrated view because they don't know how to articulate that in this culture. So they're, they're frustrated with how things are going. They don't know what to do to respond. There's a case right here in Calgary where a pastor's been arrested because uh, he had uh, broken into a drag show story hour for kids, and he started yelling and screaming. It got all into the media. He's now in jail. And my understanding is they're very frustrated because the Christian community hasn't surrounded themselves and supported this guy. Uh, and, and I think because the Christian community is scared, first of all, and secondly, the strategies he's, he's, he's taken isn't effective in this culture. It's it's actually one that makes many Christians upset. So that that's the other approach, Jonathan, that that I've seen. And so what we're trying to offer at Free to Care, and the, the name really speaks to that. We want help to help people to care. We want people to know the Christian view is the not only the true view, but it's also the view that's the most life-giving. And I call it the redemptive view as opposed to the revisionist view, because it says something that's important. In order for us to find healing and grace, we need to acknowledge we need redemption, including our sexual identity. Uh, when, when I was at the largest gay Christian conference in Chicago in 2019, one of the things I realized, Jonathan, was every one of the speakers, they all claimed to be Christians, they all came, claimed to be gay Christians, talked about their sexual identity as if it was pristine, as if it was untouched by the fall. And, and that means it doesn't need redemption, if that's the case. And, and I realized that's the problem here. All parts of us were affected by sin. All parts of us need to be redeemed by Christ, including our sexual identity and sexual attractions. And if you're trying to argue that that's not the case, that's not a biblical view. And it's that submission, understanding we need Christ's redemption, where we can actually start to help people heal. And it's acknowledging that only Christ can save us. I mean, that, that's really the Christian worldview, is it not? So what's interesting about this is that if you look um, at other countries, because uh, most of our listeners, I think, would be aware of the fact that the conversion therapy bans is part of a, a larger 
pan-Western attempt. It's sort of the next step in replacing the sexual revolution with scriptural revelation as the founding story of, of our culture. And so we saw this in France. We've seen this in a handful of other uh, European countries. And that didn't surprise me. The only thing that really surprised me, to be honest, was when the Archbishop of Canterbury came out in support of the conversion therapy ban in the UK. And just to ensure that no, nobody thinks that I'm uh, I'm criticizing him without warrant here, um, he he was not the sort of uh, a theologian who was saying, "Look, we need to be just be compassionate and loving." What he was explicitly standing up for in interviews was the the, the concept of so-called transgender children, transitioning children of that age, etc. What do you say when you see what was one of the prominent Protestant denominations not just cave so spectacularly, but collaborate with with one of the worst movements in our culture? Culture, a movement that's severely damaging many children every week. Well, what's interesting is, is and, and it's not me who says this, it's gay historians and gay activists and gay allies who acknowledge that sexual orientation itself, let's start with that, is the social construct. So the word homosexual was coined in the 1860s by gay activists in Germany trying to fight anti-sodomy laws. And they created this identity of homosexuality along with the word heterosexuality to divide humanity and put them into boxes of sexual categories. Uh, Sigmund Freud uses the same kind of mindset here, that we can now know people based on their sexual attractions. And the transgender movement just builds on that, that concept, that now we can define ourselves based solely on how we feel at the moment. Now, just think about what that means for every 7, 9, 13, 15-year-old. Right? You're a dad, right? This is going to be coming up for, for you in terms of kids. But we've all gone through puberty and all understand that especially at that age, feelings change all the time. I, I, I recall a story that I share from one of the friends I have here in Calgary who worked with the Boys and Girls Club. And in that group, he worked with 13 young people, Jonathan, and, and of the 13, half of them claimed to be transgender. This is the generation that's being affected. And this is the, the demographic too: younger people, uh, the poorer community who don't have maybe the supports that they need, but, but also um, chic sort of higher upper class people. But in this case, one of the girls of the who wanted, were claiming to be transgender, she wore a bracelet that she could alter the, the top of to determine and show what gender she was at the moment. So she could flip the top of the bracelet to indicate what her gender was. And in a span of four hours, she changed her gender five times based on how she feels. So I would ask the Archbishop of Canterbury, is that something that you would support? Do you think that's a healthy thing for a 13-year-old girl to do, to think that she can change her gender five times in four hours? And it's just that kind of common sense question, Jonathan, that I would ask, right? If you're a theologian who's making this kind of argument, your theology says your feelings are based, your identity is based on how you feel right now. Whereas the Christian worldview says, no, our identity as Christians is based on how God feels about us, and his feelings never change, right? He's God, and he determines our identity. And so at the end of the day, the, the I think the primary sin here isn't even the gender confusion. I think that's that's brokenness. 
but the primary sin here is being able to choose and encouraging people to choose to make their sexual and their gender feelings the most important thing about us. And as someone who has same-sex attractions, who fought this law because I went through a positive counseling session to help me with my same-sex attractions, and who has to make this choice daily, right? The point I make to audiences is that you may not choose your attractions, but you can choose your identity. And if the Archbishop is doing this, then he's encouraging young people to build their identity on something that is so fluid, something that changes so much. And by the way, as soon as you make that um, move, then you're endorsing transracialism. You're endorsing transspeciesism. You're tr you're endorsing transageism, right? In, in your neck of the woods, there's a guy named Paul Walsh who lives as, as a 60-plus-year-old guy, left his Catholic family of six kids, and now lives as a seven-year-old girl because he has been adopted by a family that has an eight-year-old girl who wants to be the older sister. That is something you cannot object to because the arguments he's giving for being transgender are the same arguments he's giving for being transaged. And so if feelings determine your identity, you cannot stop this kind of movement, there's nowhere to stop at that point. So the conversion therapy ban has passed here in Canada, and now you're heading up this group, Free to Care. I get your emails. I would encourage any of uh, any of the listeners here who want to know what's going on to also subscribe to those emails, because uh, honestly, it's been very enlightening. And one, I, I, I follow like these events very closely since I write about them and podcast about them, but I learned something new from, from all of your emails, so they're much appreciated. And what really triggered me to, to speak to you again, I think this is the third or fourth time we've chatted um, on this podcast, was you talking about what's coming next for the Canadian churches. And I think that it's really important to talk about because a lot of Canadians will, you know, put a lot of work into a campaign to fight the conversion therapy ban. They'll be really upset when it goes through. And then most people are unaffected by it in their daily lives and they kind of move on and they stop thinking about it. But it is the law of the land. There are a lot of forces at play right now. So maybe kind of paint us a picture of where we're at post the passage of this law. What's going on in the courts? What's going on in the culture? What should Christians be currently thinking about? Well, no, I appreciate you, you mentioning that, Jonathan, because I think it's important to say that this has practical applications, a whole bunch of things. So, for example, if you were wanting to go to a counselor, even to your pastor, to get counseling for a porn addiction, you'd be able to do that. But if my addiction to gay porn is something I need help with, and thank God I've been part of an accountability group that's really helped me deal with that— but if I go to my own pastor to help get me get help to reduce my gay porn addiction, that's now criminal. My pastor can go to jail for five years. It's that expensive, eh? Like it includes porn addiction if it's gay porn. Yeah, because the, the, the Canadian law, unlike any other law in the world, and I've looked at over 100 definitions, including the Canadian Psychological Association, the American Psychological Association, the United Nations, the United Church of Canada, Jonathan, it goes on and on from Australia to Israel to, um, I think, Chile and, China, uh, and Hong Kong. All of these conversion therapy laws ban change in orientation from gay to straight. Now, straight to gay is perfectly fine, and anyone who's watched gay pornography will know at least, I know, a large chunk of the fantasy life of these porn uh, um, scenarios involved uh, trying to seduce your straight friends. There's whole websites based on that. So that's perfectly fine, right? 
But when it comes to uh, to the law in Canada, there's a specific clause in Canadian law and the city of Bi- city Cal- of Calgary bylaw and several of the uh, laws, including the Quebec provincial government, define conversion therapy as trying to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity or reducing or repressing non-heterosexual behavior. So the way it's usually written and the way it's written in, in professional documentation, including the Canadian Psychiatric and Psychological Associations, is that the behavioral modification happens within an attempt to change sexual orientation. Because the law in the federal law uses the word or, it means that any kind of reduction of sexual behavior is independent of sexual orientation change. Right. So, like I said, that's unlike any other like, uh, law or definition of conversion therapy anywhere else in the world. And our opponents still are trying to argue that's not the case. The Justice Department came out saying there's a, a justification for this because conversion therapy is harmful, even for consenting adults like me, as if somehow the government gets to decide who I talk to about my sexuality. Just think about how oppressive that is. Uh, but in terms of, of the the definition the Justice Department gave, Jonathan, I, I just reread it for my talk this past weekend. It actually cites the United Nations, among other psychological associations, to say, well, this is harmful. But, but you, as I pointed out, those organizations, including the UN, use a different definition of conversion therapy. So their justification doesn't fly. And that's why I think the smart people on the other side know this. And guess what? Out of uh, it's been over a year now. And in, in fact, the first conversion therapy law was passed in Ontario against helping little kids. And so far, all of zero people have been charged under this law. All of zero people have been convicted. When they were pushing for this law last year, Jonathan, what they were saying is there's thousands of gay children being tortured in church basements as we speak. Well, for goodness sake, where are they? If that's the case, if this is really the law, as if... Um, torture of any kind, whatever rationale behind it, was already not criminal. It already is criminal. So why are we passing another law on top of that, right? So really the purpose of this law, to answer your question, was to create a chill effect. And that's what's actually happened. Churches are now scared of talking about sexuality. One major church pastor here, a church of a, a large church here in Calgary, has said even if someone from his own congregation were to seek help to reduce their non-heterosexual behavior or to, to help them with their same-sex attractions, he would not help them because of the law, because of the fear of the law. Now, we were just speaking in a, a town recently just to, uh, to, on this topic. We do seminars on this. And the local LGBT activists heard that we were coming and called the RCMP on us and the local bylaw officers to investigate whether or not we're doing conversion therapy. That we're hosting a seminar or we're speaking at a seminar. We're helping Christians understand the law. I'm sharing my testimony about dealing with same-sex attractions. And all they need to do is call the RCMP and claim we're doing conversion therapy based on the broadness of the definition. And many churches would have backed down. Now, thank God this pastor did not. He was willing to stand up and say, no, that's not going to happen. And the journalist who has been calling, uh, one journalist sent us a, an email and said, uh, we are investigating allegations from members of our community that you're doing conversion therapy. What's your response? Well, 
in journalism school, we were always taught you should never ask, have you stopped beating your wife? Because that assumes, right, without any evidence, the response or the answer. And whether or not you say yes or no, that makes you look terrible, right? So that's the, that's the level of professionalism we have seen in the journalism, journalism community on this topic. So what? I can make allegations against anybody I want to. Does that person have proof? So I actually just wrote the journalist back and said, look, uh, we don't support torturing anybody. We don't support forcing anyone to change their sexual behavior if they don't want to. Uh, but if there's someone making these allegations, what's your evidence? And if they do have any allegations, we'll be glad to sue anyone for defamation for making those kinds of statements. I haven't heard back from the reporter yet. So the point is, though, Jonathan, to answer your broader question, this is what's happening now to churches across Canada. And unlike the church that hosted us, they don't have the same kind of training and confidence. So in this situation, this is public now, a, a pastor in Montreal got a phone call on a Friday from a person claiming that his brother was gay, that they were both evangelical Christians, they both wanted to get help, and they were wanting to know if the pastor could help. So this kind pastor uh, gave, gave some a supportive message that, hey, you should come in, we'll do some counseling at the church. He gets a call back on Monday from a reporter saying, you just committed conversion therapy based on the Quebec and federal laws. Can you make a comment on that? And they also, and then get this, they also called two other churches, and I'm pretty sure they were ethnic churches. And in their cultures, this, this is the kind of stuff they're not used to. They're not getting, used to getting the government going after churches for upholding a belief that we've had for 2,000 years. And, and they ended up saying worse things in terms of, of the, the comments, the journalists, but then backtracking and making themselves look even worse when the report was came, came out in the news. And then get this, the uh, Quebec government, within two days of the news report hitting the newspaper, announced a million-plus-dollar plan to educate the public on how the harm of conversion therapy in radio and internet ads. It was all coordinated, right, likely. So the kind of stuff that's, that's happening, I would ask your listeners, as pastors, as church leaders, as Christian schools and counselors, if you receive that kind of phone call, would you be ready to deal with it? Do you have the training to handle that? Has your seminary where you sent your pastor gone through how to do this appropriately? And when, and, I, and I say that, I'm saying don't be cowards. We, we still have to help people. Look, the last thing I want people to do is not help people who are desperate in need. We get those calls now too. And we, we want to help people because that was me. That's still me in terms of looking for help. But to say that we're never going to help now because we're more afraid of the law than sharing the gospel means they've already won. Now, in terms of the trajectory, it's getting worse, in fact. So I'm dealing with a case, and this has become public already because we've submitted a, a public affidavit. In Toronto, there is a man named Bill Watcott, and I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with him. Is Bill he from Toronto? Because the last time he got arrested was in Calgary, wasn't it? Yeah, no, this was in Toronto this time. So he decided to dress up in a green leotard, uh, you know, the, the body, full body suit where they cover their face? Yeah, yeah. He started handing out tracks uh, about, you know, comparing homosexual activity and gay people to zombies. Um, and, and there's a message there about how Jesus loves you. And that was a good thing. 
But let's just say from a communications perspective, as well as from an evangelism perspective, from a biblical worldview, I don't think that's very effective uh, because the target audience is already hostile to you. And you're handing out tracks in a green body-fitting leotard that's not, let's just say, flattering um, to you. So <laughs> we they, they handed these out. And of course, he's going to be arrested because people will complain, and that's exactly what happened. And so now there is a lawsuit against him. The Crown Prosecutor from Ontario is arguing, Jonathan, this is what's really just the kind of thing that happens when you don't think strategically. The Crown Prosecutor is arguing that because Dr. Mr. Watcott's um, pamphlets advocates for reducing gay behavior, what he's actually doing is advocating for the reduction of gay men. And therefore, he's actually advocating for genocide. Oh, good stuff. So now that's part of this uh, lawsuit. And we have submitted our own affidavit saying, look, we don't want to reduce the number of gay men just because you want to reduce gay behavior. Uh, gay activists want us to reduce, as Christians, our activities, speaking out against homosexuality and any kind of sexual activity outside that of marriage. Uh, the, we don't accuse them of wanting to commit genocide against us. With the Crown's argument, and the Crown is she's a specialist on hate crime legislation, which is not a good sign. Um, uh, their argument, or her argument, is that uh, because homosexual activity is a fundamental part of a gay person's identity, by advocating the reduction of that behavior, you're actually wanting genocide against gay people. And and I think it's it's important for the church to understand and hear this. They will make this kind of tie-in to the biblical worldview. And if they win this kind of argument in court, this is the first one, there'll be others. Uh, that means the teaching of the Bible will be considered hate speech and advocating for genocide. What do you think the likelihood of that happening in the next five years or so is based on what you're seeing? Um, well, you, you know, you asked about the transgender confusion part of it. And I think um, the that is imploding on itself. And then I think we'll see what's what's going on in Finland, in the UK, even. Uh, I think um, I think uh, one of the other, I think Sweden, one of the other Nordic countries as well, they're already reversing the laws and not allowing puberty blockers for children under sixteen at least, right? Definitely, and definitely at that age, uh, because they've seen the damage of making your current state of feelings the center of your identity and then changing your body parts, sterilizing children at that age. I think that's going to come back on them. Uh, but, but at the same time, I think the rhetoric that's being used, especially in light of the fact that we don't have clear debate and we don't actually know how to have conversations anymore, uh, is going to be very problematic for the church. And it may, it may be not five years, though that's being optimistic, I have to be honest, because we didn't expect how bad the situation is going to be for on transgenderism five years ago. And look where we're at now, right? Here, here's one thing, and to the, your listeners is important. I think this is one of the key indicators of where we're at, at least conversation-wise. And, and, you know, as an apologist, particularly, I really focus on the conversation element of it. I tell people in, in our seminars when dealing with this issue, especially when you deal with it initially with someone, don't even talk about sexuality and gender first. 
What you need to do is ask them a basic question. Can we disagree and still be friends? Can we disagree and still be friends? And obviously the reason why that is, is because the generation that we're talking to doesn't think we have a right to disagree with them and thinks the only way to love someone is to agree with everything they say and do. And if that is the dominant cultural view moving forward, that's the end of Canadian democracy. And definitely our role as the church in Canada is going to be uh, highly diminished. And I think the faithful few who are left will be openly prosecuted. So that seems to be coming regardless of of what can be done, because politically speaking, we have a choice between the people who ramrod this law through and a conservative party whose leader voted for it. So despite individual good parliamentarians, like there is no real opposition to, to this to this agenda in any meaningful form. So what I'm hearing then is that Canadian Christians need to prepare for it. That's why your organization exists. What advice would you give listeners going forward? Well, there's a couple of things I would say. Uh, I think you need to remember this has happened before, and this is not new. The early church faced this, and and one of my favorite resources is Larry Hurtado's book, H-U-R-T-A-D-O. If you, your listeners want to get it, it's called Destroyer of the Gods. And in, in it, he asks a basic question. Why did the early church survive and thrive and then grow and dominate in a culture, in a city, in Jerusalem, where they could have been easily wiped out? And Larry says, Professor Hurtado says, there's two things. They believe the truthfulness of the eyewitness accounts. I mean, if you're talking to and walking along with Jesus after he died, I mean, it's sort of hard to deny the resurrection. And if your family members talk to him and that you trust your family members, then you want to keep writing that down and sharing it with other people, right? The, the truth matters. And that's why I always start with people. Uh, but because they believe in the truth of Jesus' teachings, they also modeled it. And that's why they showed the love of Christ that that no other community could provide. And, and that's what the gay community has done such a great job on is if we're lonely people who are sexually confused and who need community, they provide it. And I think the church has to be able to do uh, both teaching the truth and then provide that kind of community that these individuals are seeking, because that's the solution. Uh, one of the things that um, Larry talks about was, as you know, the early church uh, rescued babies that were abandoned um, in the forest and, and, you know, about to be drowned and things like that. Uh, well, one thing that I didn't know was he pointed out that 70 to 80 percent of these babies were girls because they were superfluous, they were extra. And so 20 years later, think uh, think of Roman town where uh, there's a young man looking for brides and the only available wives would have been from the Christian community. So literally they had to flirt to convert and they come become Christians in order to have a child in order to continue their, their lineage. So being pro-life in that stage and that age was really life-giving, not just to the child, but to the community, because that helped it grow. And that's the same lesson we need to learn on this issue. You're talking about kids sterilizing themselves at seven, eight, nine years old. You're talking about body parts being chopped. You're talking about a lifetime of, of early osteoporosis for girls, where they have to take medication for the rest of your life. For, for boys, the the hole that's made in their bodies when they have the operation, their body will constantly try to heal because that hole isn't supposed to be there. There was a a, a transgender person, male to female, 
and he was celebrating on Twitter that he had his first period. And, and I'm like, I don't think you should be celebrating that. If a man is bleeding from that part of his body, you should see a doctor at this point. right? Or we have a situation where uh, a, a woman who's transitioned to a man is demanding a prostate exam, even though she doesn't have a prostate. right? This is, this is the nature of where we're at right now in terms of the culture. And so we need to be, as the church, a place of solace for all of these people who realize and it may take a decade. It takes about 10, eight to 10 years, according to Walt Tyre, one of my my favorite 85-year-old former transgender friends, right? He he serves now as a website called sexchangeregret.com. Great resource. Uh, he helps people all over the world who have uh, gone to detransition. And he says it took him eight years. Some people it takes 10 years for them to realize the operation did not solve their gender dysphoria. And at the heart of it, I think you can hear my tone here. I don't hate LGBTQ people. I don't hate myself in that sense. We're actually offering a better way to love them. And there's that understanding that we must have as the church, Jonathan, moving forward, because that's the only way to survive, that what we believe is true and that we are the good guys because the gospel is good news. And if we don't have that, then then we're going to just capitulate to the culture. That's exactly what's happened now. In terms of the legislative front, uh, you know, I'm I'm a political science buff. You know that I love government and I follow it all the time. Uh, but I go back to what the early church did, just like Larry said, and this is where I add to his book. I would say the early church showed the truth, shared the truth, and showed the love in everyday conversations. And as the church, we have to be equipped to converse on these issues. The church we were just at, speaking at, uh, one of the granddaughters of, of the pastor told her dad that she was gay. And they need, they, as just, I mean, almost every family has this situation going on, right? That they want to know how to handle that situation in in wisdom now thankfully the father was able to to use some of our techniques and ask you know ask his daughter well what do you mean that you're gay and and the the daughter who's like i don't know 14 years old basically said i love my best friend who's a girl and and the the dad's like well you know being gay means sexual attraction not just loving your friend and the six the 14 year old daughter said ew that's gross <laughs> so she was using the word gay but had no idea what it meant and 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 i think as this worldview because that's what lgbtq theology and and thinking is it's a worldview it's not just sexual attraction it's a, a whole identity around a belief system collapses on itself that, that we as Christians have to be there to show a better way. In the meantime, we have to be ready to be prosecuted and persecuted. We have to be ready to push back on laws. We have to be ready to have protests at our church. But understand, and I, I love this about the church that hosted us, they were protested at by LGBTQ activists recently, but their church actually grew because they stood up against it. And, and I think if we can do it in a winsome way, we can speak with grace and truth. Um, those, those men and women of peace that Jesus said that we ought to talk to in every town, we can begin to engage with them and show that it's actually our worldview that will help all of society, because what we're saying is we are much more than just our sexual attractions. We shouldn't be pigeonholed into those attractions and identities, then at the end of the day, Christ offers a better identity. That's the gospel. And, and I think any 
church wanting to survive this next stage when we're being accused of genocide has to be able to articulate it that way. So where can uh, interested listeners find uh, your resources, your website, get in touch with you? And then my final question is, when are you going to write a book on all of this? (laughs) Well, I'm actually writing it right now. Okay, good. Your listeners can pray for that. I've actually submitted at least half of the paper. I'm hoping the rest of it will get done to the Evangelical Philosophical Society uh, meeting this fall. I'm hoping they accept it because that will be the genesis of the book. And if they don't, that's fine. I'm going to still write the book. But basically, I'm I'm putting this this together, the revisionist view, the redemptive view, to help those with the traditional view to understand we we can we can do more than oppose. We can actually offer a better identity. And people can contact us at freetocare.ca. They just ask for Jojo. And our web, our email address is admin at freetocare.ca. Thank you so much for taking the time to lay the groundwork for us here again. Anytime, Jonathan. Glad to be able to serve your listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with my friend Jojo Ruba. You heard where you could get in touch with him. Uh, For anybody who wants to get their church prepared for this, please do get in touch with him. If you want to check out past shows or subscribe to future shows, please head over to lifesitenews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You'll find it there. You can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening this week. We do hope you'll join us again next week.